Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Discover Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Emmett Hurley. I'm an ACSM and HIT Uni certified personal trainer with Discover Strength. Let's face it, busy people don't have time to waste on exercise that doesn't work. The Discover Strength Podcast focuses on bringing on the best minds in the field of evidence-based exercise, so you can look and feel your best in a fraction of the time. Thank you for joining us, and please enjoy this week's episode of the Discover Strength Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to get into this interview today, and just as excited to be joined by our resident superstar athlete. Maria Hauger joins me today from our Northeast Minneapolis location. Maria is an iconic trainer and a world-class long-distance runner who started at Shakopee High School and made it all the way to the University of Virginia, where she had a record-setting freshman season. Just for a little context, in high school, not only did Maria win the Class 2A State High School Girls Cross Country title, she did it four times, becoming the first Class 2A runner to win four straight titles. She ended her state high school career with four state titles, four conference titles, four section titles, the all-time state record, and the all-time state meet record. She was also named the 2011-2012 Minnesota Girls Cross Country Racer of the Year by Gatorade in collaboration with ESPN. Maria will go down as one of the best cross country runners ever in the state of Minnesota and was recently inducted into the Shakopee High School Athletic Hall of Fame for her amazing accomplishments. Maria, I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast today, and thank you so much for joining us uh, for this week's episode with Dr. Martin Gabala from McMaster University in Canada. I'd love to hear some of your big takeaways and things you think our listeners should be paying attention to in this episode. Yeah, well, thank you, Logan. Uh, great introduction. Yeah. Um, yeah, so some key takeaways that I found really interesting was um, kind of what you touched on of you know, starting slow with interval training, especially if you're new with it. Um, and then also like training in a level that's going to be hard enough, you're going to get the most out of it. So yes, you do want to get to where it's uncomfortable. And that is kind of hard for individuals to really get to that point of um, where it's like tough enough and you really are huffing and puffing. Um, but listening to your body is going to be really important. So I know you touched on that. So making sure that you're not, you know, overtraining, but also pushing yourself hard enough. Um, and then lastly, I just found that it was really cool, all those health benefits. So a lot of times people focus on, you know, view to max on muscle performance, all that, but then all those other health benefits that people don't realize, you know, like decreasing your risk of all-cause mortality and, and um, like blood glucose, all those things. There's so much hidden benefits you can get from um, high intensity training. Yeah, that's great, Maria. So guys, keep an eye out or an ear out, I guess, for some of those big takeaways. Dr. Gabala is just brilliant. He brings things right down to a level that we can all understand. And I know you guys are just going to love this episode talking today about high intensity interval training with probably the most well-established and respected researcher on the planet in that area. So everyone, please enjoy this episode. And Maria and I look forward to diving a little bit deeper at the end of it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again this week on the Discover Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Emmett Hurley, and I am joined today by Dr. Martin Gabala from McMaster University, a professor of kinesiology up in Canada or neighbors to the north. He is also the author of The One Minute Workout and probably, in my opinion, and I think a lot of our, our colleagues in the field, the preeminent researcher on high-intensity interval training. 
Uh, thanks for having me on. I, I think you've covered it well. We can get right to questions. So, so really, just jumping into to the background of Hit, and and really, when we talk about just for our listeners who are used to hearing us say Hit, what um, we're specifically talking about when we're discussing your research is an extra eye, right? So high intensity interval training. So this would be things that you'd be doing from an aerobic perspective, sometimes with strength training, but a lot more times it's going to be something you're doing on a bike, uh, whether you're running, swimming, anything like that. Um, I just love to hear a little bit more about your history and how you got involved with this. Now, reading a little bit of your background, I know your interest really peaked going through grad school and running low on time. So what was your initial experience like with interval training? And just tell us a little bit about how that kind of expanded into your research side. Uh, sure. So, you know, I'm an exercise physiologist. I've always been interested in that area. And when I was first a professor at McMaster, one of the courses that I taught is called the Integrative Physiology of Human Performance. Uh, I still teach it to this day. And many of the students were interested in the training regimes of high-level athletes. And I would often use that as a prism to try and teach them about physiology. But if I could frame it within context of what athletes did uh, to try and be successful, that often sparked uh, an, an interest. And so I would pose the question, why do some of these or many of these elite endurance athletes participate in these short bursts of hard intervals? So in short, how does sprinting make you a better endurance athlete? And that would often stimulate interest. And that dovetailed with a, a my personal situation at the time, which was I had a working spouse, we had two young children. And so really for one of the first times in my life, I was finding it time pressed and very difficult to work out or find the time for it quite ironically for an exercise physiology. And so it was really that professional interest uh, dovetailing with the personal interest that led me to, even to this day, just I, I continue to be fascinated by both the athletic and the scientific history of interval training. Yeah, and that's exactly the reason why we wanted to have you on today, Dr. Gabala, for that exact reason. You know, we we target people who feel like they don't have time to waste on exercise that doesn't work. And as the research has just continued to compound on a lot of it coming out of your university, um, this is one of the most efficient ways to get, maybe we'll call it the most effective bang for your buck, right? So why don't you talk to us a little bit about those first studies you put together? Now, when I, I remember reading your research originally, this was a few years ago, there were two initial studies at McMaster, I want to say it's back around 2012, um, where, where you had two separate groups. Can you talk to us a little bit about the setup of those studies? And specifically, I'm talking about uh, when we were doing the 30 second uh, sprint intervals. Yeah, it actually even dates back earlier than that. I think okay. our first study was published in 2005, believe it or not. But we were interested in this idea of how low can you go? And uh, a model at the time, some of your listeners may know of this, there's a, a, a test called a Wingate test, which is a, a 30 second all out sprint effort on a cycle ergometer, on, on a specialized ergometer. So it's sort of hard to replicate on your own, but you can imagine a typical bike at a gym setting the setting as high as it can go. So 20 out of 20 and just pedaling furiously. So even after about 15 seconds, uh, your legs are starting to get tired and you have that feeling of riding through quicksand. That's the type of effort that's required. And this is a very common test that's used in sprint sports uh, that's used to test, for example, ice hockey players uh, for their explosive power. And so that was the test that we chose to use. There had been some previous studies that had looked at multiple wind gates doing as many as 10 of those at a given time. And so we thought, well, 
What if we only had people start with about four of those? So that's only two minutes of very hard effort. And so the initial design was a very simple two-week study where the participants did six training sessions over the two weeks. And each session involved two to three minutes of all-out sprint exercise. So four to six of these 30-second repeats with four minutes of recovery. And the outcomes, there were two. The first was performance. So endurance capacity on a bike, literally riding at a submaximal workload for as long as you could before and after. And we were also interested in the cellular changes. And so we took biopsies from the subject's muscles to look at in particular, something called mitochondria, which are a very important aspect of the cell that allow you to generate energy aerobically. And so we measured the increase in mitochondrial content. And what we found was that after two weeks, uh, the individuals who did the interval training experienced a doubling of their endurance capacity. So whereas beforehand, they could ride for about 25 minutes at the workload. Afterwards, on average, they could ride for almost 50 minutes. And we also had a, a control group. So, you know, often in science, you will include a group that it's not exposed to the intervention and just looks at other changes that might happen normally over time. And in the group that only tested two weeks apart without the intervention, uh, we didn't see any improvement in their performance. And in the people that did, we also took the biopsies and we saw these marked improvements in these cellular markers of aerobic capacity. So this was the first one, correct? And then it was followed up by the study actually comparing the sprint interval training versus a more traditional group. Um, and if I recall correctly from reading these articles back in the day, there was a little bit of pushback from the industry at first saying, well, they didn't compare it to regular aerobic activity. So obviously compared to a couch potato, it's going to be great, right? But then you guys went and showed what was the, uh, the second intervention? Was it 90 minutes? Uh, you're right. And that study, the second study was in part due to just the, you know, it's interesting because the responses that we got, um, part of what was for sure, this is too good to be true. This actually yeah. can't happen. And then there were a number of responses or emails that I received from elite strength coaches or individuals who are aware of the history of interval training, who are actually saying, what's really new here. And it really reflected yeah. the fact that in some ways interval training was a, a secret for some individuals at the time, or it certainly wasn't widely appreciated, but a lot of the media interviews we had, many of the general public were just being exposed to this. And there was a lot of skepticism, including within the scientific community. And so that did lead to our next study where we said, okay, let's try and do effectively a head to head comparison of the type of exercise we might see in the public health guidelines which is about 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise, we wanted to make sure people were even doing more than that. And so the intervention was still six sessions over two weeks. And we compared that same Wingate training group doing two to three minutes of all out exercise versus another group that was doing 60, 90, and eventually 120 minutes a day of traditional endurance cycling. So huge differences in terms of total time commitment and the total exercise that the two groups were performing. And what were the outcomes there? Very similar, right? So we're seeing the same increases again from these really high level exertions that you would from what people traditionally assume is this is the only way to do it, right? You have to just hit that bike 90 to 120 minutes a day, uh, make sure you're pounding away on the pavement or on the actual bicycle respectively. And it just doesn't seem like that's the actual uh, requirement. 
Yeah, so certainly in those studies, what we saw, both groups improved after the couple of weeks of training, but there was no statistical difference between the groups. And, you know, we may even get into nuance there of, you know, are these, you know, can you take away uh, saying that these two protocols are equal based on small numbers of participants and things like that. And, but those initial studies, I think, uh, were proof of concept that you could definitely have very comparable improvements in markers of fitness, health-related markers and markers of performance, despite performing very different types and amounts of exercise. And that really, I think, opened the floodgates to many other laboratories getting into this field. And now there's upwards of 600 scientific papers a year being published on the topic of interval training. So it's just really exploded. That's awesome. And obviously this all culminated with your book, which is great. The one minute workout. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about what you've learned since those initial studies. And one of the biggest things that I think is of concern to our listeners is the thing we always get at discover strength is time. You know, we always say it's the number one barrier to exercise. People don't think they have enough of it. And a lot of people don't. Right. So is there anyone in your mind who's too busy to do some sort of protocol like this? When we say protocol, we can talk about some of the different nuances there. But is this something that that pretty much everybody could fit into their life? Yes, I'll okay. use the caveat there. Clearly, there are some individuals who have uh, clinical conditions, uh, certain heart conditions, for example, who interval training is just absolutely contraindicated for they should not do it. But that's a very small number. And you know, since those initial studies, you've seen interval training in many different formats. So what I would, you know, these initial studies that we did, those are now known as sprint interval training, you know, the, the toughest of the toughest types of interval training all out as hard as you can go. I call it sprint from danger pace. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're cycling at the pace that you would want to save your child from an oncoming car. Uh, that's only one type of interval training. And so there's been many other types of interval training that have been widely applied, including in cardiac rehab settings, older individuals, people with type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome. And so interval training, I think really spans the gamut and it can be scaled uh, like almost any type of exercise to, to starting fitness level. So that that's definitely something that we've learned in the interim. And many other laboratories around the world have been studying these different groups, looking at health related markers, uh, in addition to performance. So I'd love to talk just a little bit more about that. And again, the research for anybody interested is super fascinating. You can just type in Dr. Gabala hit studies and, you know, dozens of things are popping up talking about all these different implications that you guys have done over the years. Um, but I'd really love to talk. Let's just use the bike as an example. A lot of our clients might have something like a Peloton. How could somebody start incorporating these principles um, from a really basic perspective? So maybe a beginner, uh, intermediate, and an advanced person. What might, and again, you don't have to go too in detail here, but just simple programming that somebody could start off with to start incorporating some of these practices into their routine. Yeah, as you say, everyone's different in response to different cues. So if we have someone who just wants to try this or is just starting out, we'll just tell them, you know what, just get out of your comfort zone for a little bit. And so if you're, you know, we all have this idea of what pace we might ride at or what's a comfortable uh, pace for us. Say we typically jump on the bike and ride for a half hour consistently at a time. We'll say, you know, get out of your comfort zone for a minute and then back off. And so that literally means just pushing a little harder. You're a little bit more out of breath. You can subjectively feel your heart rate and breathing rate go up uh, a little bit. Uh, and of course, we can get much more nuance from that, getting you in heart rate zones or perceived effort zones. But 
that's a good way to, to just uh, try it out. Uh, and from there, there's other sorts of protocols. So a favorite of mine that we write about in the book is the 10 by one, which is just one minute of hard effort, one minute of recovery repeated 10 times. And that's been a protocol that's been widely applied, including in high level athletes and in people with type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So it's one of those that really spans the gamut. Uh, so in this, in this case, would hard effort be more of a subjective term, right? So hard for you in the moment. And so many people seem to resonate with a zero to 10 scale where, you know, zero is you're lying in bed. 10 is that sprint from danger, save your child from an oncoming car pace. And so hard will be a seven or eight on a 10 point scale. You know, you're not sprinting all out, but you're giving it uh, a, a good effort. And one of the things that I tried to do in my book was try and present a number of interval training protocols and frame these within the context of what we call ratings of perceived exertion or this zero uh, to 10 scale. Uh, a number of the scientific studies would suggest that the threshold for HIT or high intensity exercises, you're working at efforts that demand at least 80% of your maximal heart rate. And so if you're someone who really responds to, to heart rate training, uh, we're talking about at least 80%. And in most of our studies, the 10 by one elicit uh, around 90% of, of maximal heart rates uh, on, uh, on average. Yeah, that's great. So what are some of the, the health benefits of doing this type of exercise specifically? The, overwhelmingly, the number one measured variable is cardiorespiratory fitness. So that's the traditional cardio health that we think about when we say that term, but it reflects the ability of your heart primarily, but as well as your lungs, your blood vessels to transport oxygen and your cells, especially muscle to use the oxygen that gets uh, delivered. It's a critical measure uh, for athletes. Uh, you know, it's objectively measured as a maximal oxygen uptake or VO2 max test that I'm sure many listeners uh, would be familiar with. Obviously a high VO2 max is uh, a necessary but not sufficient component uh, to be a successful endurance athlete, but it's also uh, critically important for health. And we know that individuals who have a higher cardiorespiratory fitness have a lower risk of dying from all causes. They have a lower risk of developing cardiovascular disease uh, and type two diabetes. And it's even been parsed out that individuals who have uh, a, a one met, that's a, a unit of measurement, but for an average person, maybe about a 10% higher fitness level, their risk of dying from all causes is, is about 15% lower. So the epidemiological studies are, are quite clear on that. Uh, so that'd be the number one measure. Other health-related measures uh, include uh, glycemic control, or basically a measure of blood sugar uh, control. Your insulin sensitivity gets better when you do this type of, of training, uh, and that's related to a number of, of factors. Um, your blood vessels get more elastic. Uh, so loose, flexible arteries are good. It allows blood and oxygen to flow, flow better. And so measures of, uh, of elasticity uh, will, uh, will improve. Um, you know, literally, we can look at cellular and molecular markers in many different tissues and show that they are healthier or get better uh, after periods of any type of exercise training, but certainly brief, vigorous exercise can trigger many of these similar cellular changes uh, as a much higher volume of, of traditional endurance exercise, which again resonates with those folks that claim to be uh, time pressed. 
Yeah, and that's that's why again wanting to speak to you in particular, I think was so important, especially for our clients who who really have embraced this idea of hard work when they come into Discover Strength. It's just so hard to break that connection that most people have with you can weight train, but you also have to do five hours of cardio per week or whatever it might be based on the recommendations. And having somebody like you that's done so much of this research, I think what it really boils down to, and, and I would hope you would agree with this, is whatever you're going to do when it comes to exercise, don't just dilly-dally, right? Do it with some intensity of effort and you're going to get the most benefit, the most bang for your buck again. Um, let's talk a little bit uh, from a programming perspective about some of the more recent studies that I've seen and uh, a little more higher intensity levels. So one of the ones that I like when I do uh, interval training myself is the 10-minute protocol, right? So the two-minute warm-up, 20-second sprint, two minute. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, um, the inception of it, and then the study versus the 50 minutes of effort. So we're seeing that five-fold decrease in time. What did that study look like and what were the outcomes there as well? Yeah. So, you know, one of the criticisms that we heard and it was fair was early on with these Wingate training studies that we talked about, you know, 30 seconds uh, with four minutes of recovery, repeat that four, five, six times. Uh, you're up around 30 minutes for a training yeah. session. And so, you know, someone would say, well, that's not that time efficient. And it's a fair point. So we wanted to come up with a protocol uh, that no one could argue with uh, was was time efficient. We were influenced a little bit by some work that some UK researchers were doing, but we settled on this program that involved 20 second sprints. And as crazy as it sounds, it's really, if you've done these Wingate tests, it's the last 10 seconds of the Wingates that really just, make you feel bad. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, your performance drops off. Uh, many of the systems are, are literally shutting down. And that's where you often get that feelings of nausea as, as well. And so we thought you can do uh, get a lot of the benefit uh, with two thirds of the time. So we cut it down to 20 seconds and we thought we'll have people do that three times within a 10 minute time commitment. So start to finish 10 minutes, a little bit of warm up, cool down, and we cut back on the recovery. Uh, that was the one minute workout, if you will, being born uh, three 20 second efforts. And so we did a, a series of studies showing that many of the benefits we'd seen before with the longer Wingate training studies, uh, we could replicate with these shorter uh, protocols. Uh, and then that led to another comparison study, much like we talked about earlier, where we did now the the three 20 seconds within a 10 minute time period, we had people do that three times a week. So that's, uh, you know, uh, three minutes of hard exercise a week, a 30 minute total time commitment versus a group that was doing 150 minutes of continuous moderate exercise. So they were doing three 50 minute continuous exercise bouts a week. And again, that was trying to mimic public health guidelines. And so the question there was, can you do these short, hard interval workouts? And how does that compare with the benefits you might see with a, a more public health prescription approach? Uh, this was a 12-week study, so longer than we'd seen before. But again, the message was largely similar. In these relatively small groups of participants, against proof-of-concept studies, we saw um, identical average improvements in fitness it was almost 20% uh, improvements in cardiorespiratory fitness. Uh, we took biopsies, we saw, saw very similar improvements in, in those mitochondrial markers that I talked about. And we also in that study included a measure of insulin sensitivity, uh, a measure of blood sugar control. And so again, the takeaway was these 
brief hard workouts, not even as hard as before, or not even involving the time commitment of before, uh, was still very, very effective at improving these health-related markers uh, and performance markers as well. And I'm so glad you shared all that. That's really the reason I wanted to bring this up, especially because I think it ties in perfectly with beginners, intermediates, or advanced people, right? This 10-minute commitment to me just makes so much sense, right? If you can do even just a moderate increase in your effort for 20 seconds, right? You can start off on a bike two minutes, push it really hard, have that timer right in front of you, take another two minutes, try to push it a little harder the next time, you know, and as you get more advanced, obviously you can start using things like your METs or your output, um, watts, whatever it might be on the bike uh, that you're trying to track. So just such a great protocol to kind of dip your toe in the water, or even if you're advanced, just really find the minimum effective dose to really get the most uh, out of this sort of protocol. Let's talk about a little bit about putting these things into action, right? So does it matter? what the type or the style of training is? Could somebody do this running? Could they do it on a bike, swimming, rowing? Is there studies on other um, similar ideas, but with different uh, prescriptions? Or has it all been done pretty much on cycles? Uh, no, it's uh, it, in short. And it, what I'm talking here is for the average person for general conditioning, it really doesn't matter. So do what you like, elliptical, swim, bike, run. You know, if you're someone, as you get older, you have bad knees, uh, you could do uh, cycling or rowing uh, rather than running. So broadly speaking, the type of cardio doesn't really matter. Obviously, if you're an athlete or training for a specific sport or event, you want to dial that in uh, a little bit uh, more. But uh, big picture, it, it, it really doesn't matter. Gotcha. So uh, if somebody had something like a Peloton, which I mentioned, quite a few of our listeners probably have something similar to that at their home. Would this be something where you're literally jacking up the intensity on the twist dial when you get to those sprints? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where, you know, you can dial it in a self-selected pace. If you have a bike that uh, expresses things in watts, you know, you can dial in very specific uh, power outputs. Uh, but otherwise, it is just dialing up the uh, the, the workload setting, uh, going hard, you know, that self-selected uh, yeah. pace of, of going as, as hard as you can, if you want to get to that point, and then uh, uh, backing off. And so, you know, the research here, it really has started to expand. And in some ways, I don't want to be glib about this, but it's a little bit like, uh, you know, vaccine comparisons right now, we know that many of the vaccines are effective, but people here, 72%, 68%, there hasn't been head-to-head -head comparisons in systematic studies. And it's like that for interval training research. Of course, there's so many different protocols that all of these have not been systematically compared. And so again, I think the broad takeaway there is many different types of protocols are likely to be effective. Uh, you may find some that you like uh, more. Some people like to have a very consistent workout that they do all the time. Others like to vary it up. And so I think that gives people license to tailor their workout for what they deem to prefer the most. And it's likely to be effective. And then, of course, again, if you're the elite athlete or you really are highly training for a specific sport, you can start to dial it in more for your specific sport or event. Well, that's a great segue to my next question here, which is if somebody is training for an event, whether it's a marathon, maybe they're doing an Ironman, something specific like that, that's more endurance based, um, how or should someone incorporate this into their training? Do you have any sort of recommendations for that? Or does it really depend on their level? Yeah, so in, it, it does depend. But I, I think there's some broad takeaways that we can draw. And so the first is, if you 
talk to the elite sports scientists and coaches who are really at the coal face in terms of working with high level endurance athletes, most will still recommend about an 80-20 mix. So 80% traditional endurance training, 20% intervals of varying types in order to optimize uh, performance. And that really hasn't changed that much. But if clearly any successful uh, endurance athletes competing at a high level are incorporating uh, intervals into their training. But of course, that's individuals, this is their job. You know, if, in it, you know, it's been pointed out to me, if you're training 30, 40 hours a week, well, 15 or 20% of intervals, that's still a lot of interval training yeah. in an absolute yeah. sense. Now, for many individuals, they're, you know, what I call the, they're mere mortals. So they may be wanting to train at a high level and even compete at a high level, but they're juggling jobs and work life and families and all of these other commitments. And my personal opinion is that, for those individuals who are not putting in the very high training volumes of the uh, typical elite endurance athlete, then that percentage can shift. And there's certainly many examples of high level uh, triathletes, cyclists who are putting in lower training volumes, but still competing successfully and shaving that to maybe 50, 50 or 40, 60 in terms of intervals to more traditional. So in short, I think the lower the overall training volume, the higher you can slide up the percentage of intervals to enhance that quality of, of training. And the last point I would make there is there was just a study that came out late last year showing in, you know, we throw these terms around elite. This was a study in truly elite level cyclists, all had VO2 max values above 70. They compared types of interval training. And so some were doing longer intervals, five minutes in duration, and others were doing the hard sprints. And what they showed was that the hard sprints further enhanced performance in these elite cyclists. And so I think the takeaway there is for many elite athletes who are already incorporating interval training, they're doing these three, four, five minute intervals. They're not really doing the brief hard sprints. And I think there's room there for at least for them to experiment in training. You know, it's like you don't wear the new running shoes on the day of the race. Don't yeah. try this right before your peak race of the season, but certainly in training, experiment with some sprinting and, and see if that translates into some boosts in performance. Yeah, and that's so interesting. And just for our listeners who may not know as much about uh, the actual research, the reason working with elite populations and even seeing those shifts in somebody like that is so important is because if it works at that level, it's more than likely going to work at the baseline, but the opposite is not always true. So what Dr. Gabala is kind of saying there is if we're just looking at regular people, they're probably all going to experience improvements, right? But if we can see those changes with these sprints in these really high level over 70 VO2 max, uh, you know, cyclists, or were they cyclists? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's probably going to have implications for the average Joe or the mere mortals as you, as you put it so eloquently there. So uh, one more thing I kind of wanted to touch on with you, sir, is I, I saw an article recently that was shared with me um, that basically was talking about hit as too much of a good thing. Right. And there's been some research out there that's looked at people who are maybe overdoing it a little. Um, I don't know if you've seen this this article or, or others similar to it. Talk to me a little bit about hit over training and how to avoid those things, how to not make those mistakes or maybe pushing the limits a little bit too far. 
Yeah, the uh, the study, if it's the one I think you're talking about, it was it was published actually in a very prestigious scientific journal called Cell Metabolism, very basic scientific study. But in short, what they did was they had individuals do a very high volume of high intensity interval training, and they took biopsies and they showed uh, molecular evidence of disruption, literal disruption to these mitochondria and, and some of these cellular components. And so, you know, I, I think the takeaway there is that even uh, very highly trained individuals can overdo it, right? Elite athletes can can overtrain. And so uh, that means anyone can overtrain. And so the takeaway is really just that you're right. It is possible to overdo intensity, just like it's possible to overdo volume. And I'm sure if we had a number of elite coaches on, we could have a, quite a debate around is overtraining more related to intensity or volume. It's, it's yeah. probably both. You know, what, what it means for individuals is... You know, some of these cliches we throw around, stay within yourself, know your own body, it does resonate. And, you know, I'll, I'll read some of these media articles that say never do hit more than three times a week. Well, it really depends, right? If, if yeah. we took 100 people and we subjected them to the same training program, some are going to thrive and some are going to wither. You must see it all the time. And so you yeah. must have to adjust programs depending on your clients and, and your assessment of your client. And so it's, it's very much the same with interval training. So I think uh, the, the, you know, the takeaways are start slow, right? Don't overdo it, especially to start. Um, you can measure uh, some of these markers of, you know, unfortunately overtraining is this nebulous thing. It's very hard to, uh, objectively, uh, say that someone's in overtraining, but we know that a very good marker is resting heart rate. And so if you are someone who is habitually measuring your heart rate while you sleep, uh, an elevation in resting heart rate can be an indicator that maybe you're, you're overdoing it uh, a little bit. Obviously, you know, prolonged soreness of muscles, uh, high eccentric loads, uh, causing muscle damage. In short, it's really just listening to your body. And ideally, if you have some of these more objective cues and increasingly with uh, the various technology that's available to us, it's, it's easy to track our fitness and we get a sense of what our normal baselines are. Pay attention to those. And the bottom line is, yeah, you can overdo interval training just like you can do any, overdo any type of exercise. Question for you, just from your own experience with wearables, we definitely have a lot of clients who are, um, you know, have some sort of wearable device. Now, heart rate is obviously a great one, resting heart rate specifically. Are there any other markers you've seen, HRV, things that are are dependable in tracking? Or would you say that just looking at your resting heart rate over a course of a three-month period, if it's continuing to increase, maybe you're overdoing it. Any sort of recommendations that people can put into practice with that? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, cause obviously resting heart rate is going to track fitness as well. And so if you're getting more fit, you would expect resting heart rate to go down. I, I think in terms of looking for in over, let's say your resting heart rate is consistently around 60 beats per minute. Uh, and then suddenly it's 65 for a couple of days. You know, that may be an indicator. Uh, maybe you just haven't slept as well. Maybe you ate before bed a couple of times or had a couple of uh, alcoholic drinks, but acute changes in where your normal baseline are is something to pay attention to. Yeah, there's increasing research around heart rate variability. And so I think many of these wearable 
technologies are, are starting to capture that. But I, I think it's really important. How well can the wearable actually measure what it claims to, to measure? And, you know, sure. some, some companies are better than other, but uh, that's why I keep coming back to heart rate because it's, it's relatively easy to measure. Uh, it, you know, it's relatively robust and we know that increases in resting heart rate are what many athletes rely on. So I, I keep coming back to that one, but you're right. You know, some of these uh, wearables now are giving you your scores, right? And it's calculating a score that's taking in, for example, sleep, activity, heart rate, and heart rate variability. Uh, if you find that that score is typically around 80 and then suddenly it drops to 60 for a couple of days, again, that may be an indicator for you. Yeah, this has been been so helpful. I mean, I think the big recaps for me today, and, and please add in anything if you think I'm missing it, but uh, number one is just start slow and, and try to do these things. Try to incorporate some interval training into your cardio uh, workouts if you haven't already, and don't feel overwhelmed by having to do it all at once, right? So start slow would be the first one. When you do get into it, push yourself right? If we're going to try it, go as hard as you can, whatever you're capable of at the moment. And then lastly is just listen to your body, right? Don't overdo it. Um, now, if, did I miss anything there? Do you have any other uh, big important points you think people should take home? Maybe just two. I think that idea of getting out of your comfort zone, uh, you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. And there's a lot of distance there between getting out of your comfort zone and sprinting all out. And so for many individuals, they're never going to do hard sprints because they just don't like the feeling that that gives them. There's, there's a broad spectrum of interval training. And I think people can find, and you know, it, it literally runs the gamut from interval walking, uh, right up to these all out as hard as you can go sprints. And so I like to think there's a type or a flavor of interval training that's available to almost uh, anyone. And you're right, this idea of it's important to huff and puff regularly, you know, we're so focused on the low bar of just moving out of sedentary behavior, of course, that's important. And so these generic messages of, you know, we should uh, stand up more and, and walk more, all good messages. But I think regularly huffing and puffing uh, that's exercise induced, uh, that should be a message that uh, resonates with people as well. Love that. And uh, everyone, if you haven't checked it out already, grab a copy of the One Minute Workout. Dr. Gabala, we're so privileged to have you here with us today. I'll make sure I link to your social uh, and your email if you're willing to, to offer that out to our listeners if they'd like to contact you. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, today. If you've got any questions, please feel free to reach out to me as well. Um, big takeaway again, intensity is key. Lack of time is no longer an excuse. So let's get out there and do some intervals, guys. We'll see you again soon. Thanks everyone for sticking around after this episode today on the Discover Strength Podcast, joined again by Maria Hauger, one of our iconic trainers at our Northeast location. Maria, just such an awesome episode. Dr. Gabala, like I said in the beginning, is just so down to earth and he makes these takeaways just so easy to understand. I'd just like to start off today with you. I think you're so unique in the sense that you are really a world-class runner. I mean, for our clients that don't know, Maria's booking it at like an hour and a half, half marathon, right? She is flying, right? So I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe some things that you didn't know, right? Because you probably incorporated interval training in your training in the past, maybe some big takeaways that you weren't really aware of listening to this episode. Yeah, um, I think the 
thing like with an athlete, you're you're kind of used to really interval training. And then like a lot of in the athlete field, um, you kind of think like, oh, other people know how to start interval training and you kind of forget like, okay, like people are not necessarily used to pushing themselves that hard. So I think he touched on and what you touched on Logan um, was, you know, starting slow, but also making sure you're listening to your body throughout the workout um, is going to be really important. I think what's also nice about interval training, it is a short period of time. So there's like your discover strength workouts, you know, you're going to come in, work insanely hard for that short amount of time. And then it's no, Hey, 30 minutes back and like push myself this hard. It's done. It's going to be over with. And you don't have to like, you know, suffer for an hour or longer. And it's a short term or short time of um, under tension. Yeah, for sure. And such a great point. And it was really interesting to me too, right? You know, Dr. Gabala talked about this and touched on it. When his research first came out, he had those two uh, different viewpoints from people that were responding. Like, there's no way this could be true, right? You can't get these sort of results from this short time investment. And then people like you, athletes, you know, I, I'm not a great athlete, but I played some football and stuff in high school. And, you know, we did intervals all the time, right? It was pretty well known, the benefits that you could get from that. So it's just so interesting how long it takes for the actual research to kind of matriculate down to the general population. Mm -hmm. And again, I can't think of a better person than Dr. Gabala to be kind of spreading all this research, right? I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience with intervals. How, How do you tend to incorporate that maybe back in your college days? You know, he mentioned, um, with some of our higher level athletes that maybe we need to ramp down the intervals, right? Because you could be overtraining in that sense. So, so what does that look like for you in your, in your routine? Yeah. So in high school and college that I ran division one uh, cross country and track, um, we'd always like build a week schedule. So you would have like, say you would do like about eight miles on Monday. Um, you would do like a track session which would be your interval session on Tuesday. And like my, one of my favorite interval would be like a 16 by 400. So that means you're going to do 16, 400 meter repeats around a track. And then you get so much of recovery in between that. Um, but it's more of a shorter interval base where it's going to prep you to run faster in your 5k or 10k, even though you're not training to run 400, at least that higher, faster running is going to help you prepare for your longer distances. So we do like one high interval workout throughout the week. And then Wednesday would be another easier day. Thursday would be like a longer kind of more endurance tempo day where we'd do something um, like a harder effort, but it'd be for a still a shorter amount of time. Cause as you stated, um, obviously if you're going to do it harder, you can't go as long. And then we work in like a longer run throughout the, like the weekend, but we always really relied on at least two like harder intervals. And, um, in the podcast, it touched on how everybody can do interval training. It's just that kind of some people like to do it, you know, faster, maybe really only 15 minute or 15 second sprints where some people think their interval is going to be a mile repeat. Like it's completely different. Um, but know that like every athlete usually does do some type of interval training. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And just honestly, Maria, the thought of doing 16, 400 meters <laughs> makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit. Um, you know, for the rest of us that are, you know, as Dr. Gabala said, mere mortals, right? I think it's so important to realize, you know, it could be just 100 meters, right? It could be a 10 yeah. second interval, like you said. And I think what what the big takeaway from all of this was that you just have to start somewhere, right? And I think that's so empowering, like you said, when you come into Discover Strength, when you do a workout with us, we know we can meet you wherever you're at, right? And if you bring that same mentality into this sort of interval training, you're going to get great results, right? You don't have to start by doing 16, 400 meters, you know, like a division one athlete, you can just 
go hard for 10 seconds, go hard for 20 yeah. seconds. You know, like Dr. Gabala said, just huff and puff, right? Get that breathing up and make sure that you're working with a high level of effort. Um, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about the one minute workout, what the protocol looks like and, and how to incorporate it for some of our clients. Now, I know you were used to work out at our Chanhassen location, which is one of the few locations that we have that actually has a treadmill where we'll incorporate some of these um, sort of protocols uh, with our clients. Talk to us a little bit about the different styles of intervals that you've done and what you found to be the most efficacious for clients. Yeah, so we would have like cardio workouts where we have, you know, set routines for the clients. It's 30 minutes, um, but we even have like there's hill repeat ones, there's shorter ones. Like some people are, they just do a, like a 15 second hard and then a 30 second easy um, and there's ones that are even a little longer where you will build up to like a max of like a three minute harder one. Um, but it's a good variation. And what's nice is we use um, perceived level of exertion to know where the client is. Like, hey, does this feel like, like I think um, the term was like you're running to uh, grab your kid or something or save your yeah, kid. Save versus, your life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or on the couch. So we use that scale to make sure the client is being pushed at the right intensity. Um, like they feel like they're being challenged and worked, but not overworked. Yeah, for sure. And I, I just feel like, you know, interval training just fits so well for our clients that come in that have a passion for doing cardio, or maybe just feel like they need to, right? They want to be a more well-rounded uh, fitness routine. So they feel like they need to do that stuff. But I'm sure you've experienced this before as well. We have so many people who come to us for the first time and they just say, how much cardio should I be doing? How many times yeah. a week should I be hitting the treadmill? And what I want to tell them is go for 10 minutes, right? But go hard for 10 minutes, you know, do some sprints like this. And that's all you're going to need, right? Whether it's on your Peloton, whether it's on your treadmill, whatever it might be. If you have the time, obviously you can commit to a little more steady state. But I just think this fits so well with our model of busy people who just don't have time to waste on exercise that doesn't work, right? We know this yeah. works. The research is, you know, abundantly clear at this point. I think Dr. Gabala said there was something like 600 research studies that are coming out almost every year now on the topic of interval training. So, you know, the, the science is in, this stuff works. It's just finding what works for you. Now, I, I know you train a few high level athletes as well, runners, things like that. I'd love to talk to you about how you kind of bridge this gap with them, how you let them know that they need to maybe incorporate some intervals or if you've had those conversations with people in the past when they're training for something like a, a marathon maybe it's grandma's or the twin city 10 mile yeah um so we like i'll sit down with them and ask okay what is your goal like is your goal to run faster or um, a pr in this event whatever it is and then i kind of make their strength training routine around that so um, like right now, for example, I have a client that's going to run a marathon soon and we have her hard days. So she's going to do an interval workout in the morning on Tuesdays. And so do a strength workout on Tuesday evening, cause that's going to be a hard day. Then her next two days are easy. And that just means like easy running. So then she allows her body to get a true recovery day. And then she'll do another like harder strength, another interval on a Friday. And that will be her two hard days and allows enough recovery time after as well. Um, and those are usually in her interval days and those hard. You just never want to program, especially if your goal is to like run faster and improve on your times. You just don't want to strength train, obviously, before you're, you're like trying to run because that's going to feel like you have heavy legs. So we make it so it works into their running program. 
Yeah, such an important point. I'd love to touch, uh, I think this flows perfectly into that whole idea of overdoing it a little bit, right? Have you had any experience with, you know, Dr. Gabala mentioned, um, and we talked about that, that uh, um, news article that came out a few few months ago that basically looked at people who are overdoing this, right? And we know the same thing can happen when we have somebody who comes in that, you know, tells us during their intro workout, hey, I want to do this five days a week. And we basically look at them like, good luck. I mean, we can try. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think people quickly find out after, you know, a few sessions that this is not something you can do all the time. How would you kind of navigate that conversation with some of our, our clients who maybe want to add this in, but make sure that they don't overdo it? It too much. Yeah, and just really educate that when they're in here for their two times a week strength workouts, like you want to you want to work insanely hard. Like these are your time to really push yourself, and then your recovery days after. That's where you're going to recover. That's actually where the magic of the workout happens. A lot of times people think the magic happens in the workout itself. It's in those 48, 72 hours after where your muscles are recovering, the rebuilding, you're getting stronger. So if you were to you know go do um, like another strength workout in between your discover strength, all you're doing is just sending yourself back. So you got to make sure that you're recovering yourself. Um, and like you touched on in the podcast is, is listening to your body. You guys see, you know, where you're at. Um, one thing that I always did in high school and college was you guys talked about, um, heart rate and when I didn't have like a, you know, Garmin or an iPhone or anything to track my heart rate. So every morning I would just take my heart rate for 30 seconds it was usually around like, you know, 44, 48. If I knew it was too high, it was higher than that. I knew my body was under stress or um, maybe I was a little bit getting sick or something like that. And that's how I would gauge if I was doing overdoing it or not. So that's one way to do it um, if you really want to look at your heart rate too. Yeah, such a valuable point, right? Because we all get so caught up in the metrics and what does my Apple Watch yeah. say or my Whoop Strap? Yep. I mean, you just saved somebody $500 right there. Just right? take your pulse right in the morning and, and yeah. see how your body's responding. But really, it's it's such a, a important takeaway there. You know, Maria, we can find these things that are our keys to if we're overstressed, if we're overworked. And if that's the case, just take an extra recovery day. You know, there's yeah. nothing's going to set you back. Um you know, if, if you take an extra 24 hours off, it's not like you're going to lose everything you just gained. Right. And you're going to get all those benefits of actually having the time of your body, um, you know, recovering fully. So the last thing I really want to touch on here is just uh, the myriad of different health benefits that we kind of touched on in the beginning. I'd love to talk to you just about this kind of misconception that people have. Now, we've known for a long time that cardio, quote unquote, cardio is good for you, right? It's got health benefits. There's uh, lower all-cause mortality um, associated with people who have higher VO2 maxes. But I think the thing that's so cool about interval training, right, is Again, you can get all those benefits with such a shorter time investment. So what does that conversation with you, with clients look like when people are saying like, what should I be doing for my cardio? How should I be incorporating this sort of stuff? Yeah, so I would just like, like say that whatever their activity is, and not everybody likes to run or bike or whatever it is. I want to like do something that's going to be, um, allow you to do it on a habit or have, you know, make a schedule. Like I always say routines are great. So if you come and discover strength on, you know, Monday and Thursday or Tuesday or Friday, whatever it is, like program your other cardio workouts, just like you would your strength workouts. Like it's a priority and it's on your schedule. And all you do is block off, you know, your 20 to 30 minutes. You either get on your Peloton, your bike, whatever it is. And, and I like the, like the one minute hard, one minute easy. That's a super easy one to start with. Like maybe just do a five minute, you know, easy kind of um, jog or bike, and then get into your one minute hard, one minute easy. And the hard could be 
like you huffing and puffing, making sure that you're really exerting yourself easy. You're just backing it off. It doesn't have to be exact science to it. Just know that you want to push yourself to where you're feeling like you're working. Yeah. And, and I think the thing that people will notice when they start to incorporate this, and obviously we, we kind of touched on it on the podcast is you'll start to feel the difference, right? Like that huffing and puffing that you had before, all of a sudden it's like, well, I got to go a little bit harder, right? I've got more left in the tank. And that's kind of the cue to us that we're, we're starting to see all those downstream benefits, which I think is really what people are looking for when they think about cardio, right? You're going to be more insulin sensitive. You're going to decrease your resting heart rate. You're going to, um, I mean, gosh, there's just a plethora of benefits that come from not just strength training, but also doing this sort of interval training. And they just complement each other so well, which is again, why I was so excited to have Dr. Gabala on the podcast, especially because as you know, so many of our clients come to us with this misconception that they have to do so much. And the reality is, if you work harder, you don't have to do as much. You just really have to invest in doing that hard work. And like you said, building the habit around it, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. it's two workouts a week, two interval workouts a week, you're looking at two hours, right? It's not a huge time investment. And the payoff down the road is obviously astronomical for your health and well-being. Um, Maria, any other big uh, takeaways, things maybe you learned that you didn't know before that you'd like to share with our clients, or just kind of like words of wisdom for people if they want to try to incorporate this sort of thing in their own, own workouts? Yeah. Um, well, that podcast was awesome. Um, I would say just the biggest thing with this is creating a habit, um, and consistency with either like strength training or with your interval training, um, really just making a routine is going to be the best like success as long down, down the road and just being consistent with your training and with your, um, with your running is really going to help with, like overall health. So I'd say just try to make a routine, like set out a schedule and stick to that. I love that. Yeah. So if you don't have a routine already, if you're bouncing all over the schedule, try to find a time, get it set on the calendar months in advance, get something scheduled with Maria out in Northeast, or you can come out to the East side and see us at Woodbury. And thank you guys so much for listening today to this awesome episode with Dr. Martin Gabala. Maria, thank you so much for joining me and taking the time today. Guys, uh, please keep listening. We've got another episode coming for you in a couple weeks. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We hope you continue to tune in to catch up on the most important information in the field of evidence-based exercise. If you love the Discover Strength podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to me at logan at discoverstrength.com for comments or guest ideas. Please also like and subscribe on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Help us spread the word of smart, efficient training, and we'll continue to help you look and feel your best in a fraction of the time.